Hey, and welcome back to the All Things All People podcast, where we are interviewing Christian thinkers or we're just Christians thinking. And today is an amazing Christian thinker episode. We have a guest that I personally, I just, I follow her on social media because I enjoy what she puts out. I read her stuff when it, when it gets posted on websites like First Thoughts, Vox, The Atlantic, Gospel Coalition, because I just like reading what she writes. And she used to teach at my alma mater, my undergraduate alma mater. And so I'm a fan of hers. And so she was one of the first people that I reached out to when I started this podcast. And she was so gracious to be on it. I'm excited for you to hear her because I was excited to talk to her. Um, But before we get to that, I want to tell you in the coming weeks, you're going to be amazed at some of the people you get to hear from. And they're going to have a, a wide range of perspectives and opinions, both in regards to their faith and religious practices and, of course, politics. And so I'm excited for you to hear from somebody like Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor, who teaches currently at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, used to teach at Liberty University for 21 years, and is well known for being enigmatic and eccentric. And somebody who, as you're going to hear her and I speak about, uh, is hard to put in a well-defined box. And so I'm excited for you to hear this interview, to hear what she has to say about what's going on in the world right now and how she sees it and how she sees herself in it and how she sees Christians and specifically evangelicals in it. She has an amazing, amazing uh, perspective and therefore has awesome things to say. And so I'm excited for you to hear it. I'm excited for you to see just how the Lord's going to use this podcast in the next few months. And just once again, thank you for being a listener. Thank you so much for being a listener. If you don't follow me on social media, follow me at allthings.allpeople on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, go ahead right now and, and you know, if it's not going to stop the podcast for you to go do that, go do that right now. Also hit up at Karen Swallow Pryor on Instagram and just see what she's doing. She's putting out um, a series of classic books where she's giving commentary and advice on how to read said books. She, as you're going to hear in the intro, uh, she's one of those people that has an intro a mile long because of everything that she's done. She's got three books that you can go buy on Amazon right now if you want to, and I encourage you to. And so it's going to be an, an amazing podcast. I'm super excited for you to listen. If at the end of it, you really enjoyed what you hear, make sure you go subscribe. If you're on iTunes, go give five stars and a review because I would love for this to become a podcast that more and more people hear, not because you know, me or anybody that I'm associated with is trying to get famous, become well known for having a podcast, but we're just here trying to make God famous. And so let's do that together. And so I'm excited for you to hear what Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor has to say. So let's get to it. Uh, My guest today is research professor of English and Christianity and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. She is the author of Booked, Literature in the Soul of Me, Fierce Convictions, The Extraordinary Life of Hannah Moore, Poet, Reformer, Abolitionist, and On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Literature. She is co-editor of Cultural Engagement, a Crash Course in Contemporary Issues, and has contributed to numerous other books. Her writing has appeared at Christianity Today, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, First Things, Vox, Relevant, Think Christian, The Gospel Coalition, Religious News Service, uh, Books and Culture, and other places. And so my guest today is Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. Dr. Dr. Karen, thank you so much for being here today. 
Thank you for having me. Yeah. Uh, I had mentioned sort of in, in our virtual green room here, um, you used to teach at Liberty University, and that's where I did my undergraduate. And uh, you had a very big footprint there. I, uh, I'm a pastor in North Carolina. And so I, I remember a few years ago, um, beginning to see you show up on the Gospel Coalition and, and some of these other, um, you know, uh, article websites and whatnot. And uh, you have just a very interesting perspective. Um, I guess before we start and get into the nitty gritty, uh, do you enjoy sort of being kind of like somebody that people don't expect to hear from on websites like the Gospel Coalition and First Things? Um, do, do people not expect to see me there? <laughs> I don't know. It, it seems like, uh, it seems like every time I hear your name, uh, there's always just like, who, who is this lady? She's, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, the more you read about you and the more you read of what you have to say, um, you really are a fascinating person and fit perfectly into what this show is really about is Christian thinkers. And, and so, um, but yeah, you, you bring a really interesting perspective and I love reading. I love literature, but before we dive into that, I think I'd be uh, amiss if I didn't talk about some of the things that really make you unique, which is a Christian activism. And, you know, we live in a world today where I think a lot of Christians shy away from activism. Um, I think you're a great role model for young Christians to, to show them how to do it. Um, I saw in a, a 1992 Buffalo news article. So going way back to your roots in New York, um, a scene in a federal courthouse describing you as a spokesperson for a pro-life group uh, in, in the, the reporters describing the reaction to you by many of the pro-choice representatives on the other side of the courthouse. And he said something really interesting. He said, for a minute, some of the feminists on the other side feel their stereotypes start to crumble. Uh, and one of them said, I have trouble imagining someone who is as intelligent and articulate as she is actually being part of that group. Um, when, when people describe you, they seem to express in some way that you're enigmatic. Um, how has it made you feel throughout your career that people seem to have a difficult time putting you in a well-defined box? Well, I, I guess it, um, it's just been part of my identity since I was uh, a little girl. I mean, I kind of talk mm -hmm. about this in my first book, which you mentioned booked literature and the soul of me, which is about, um, growing up loving books and um, and growing up in the church and having a sense that that those two things couldn't go together and I had to choose between them and kind of the mm -hmm. journey of figuring out, no, that they go together, the life of the mind and the life of God go very well together. Yeah. Um, but because I, my whole life has kind of been characterized by not fitting into the boxes that the mm -hmm. world offers um, and having to kind of you know, to, to make my own box, I guess. Um, it is just who I am. And I, you know, I had to, I basically had to overcome that crisis in about seventh or eighth grade, right. Of just sort <laughs> yeah. of not, not fitting into people's boxes. So, yeah. uh, that was a crisis point. Uh, but, uh, ever since then, it's just, you know, I'm just, uh, I, try to um, conform to my strong convictions, which are based mm -hmm. on biblical belief in my Christian right. faith. And if they don't line up with the church culture or the political parties or the issues of the day, um, so be it. Um, and yeah. so it's just, yeah, it, it, it's, it, it's just my life, I guess. So, yeah. Well, I suppose at some point you'd have to get used to it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, when I went in, you know, a lot of most of my life was spent, even though I grew up in the church and grew up in a strongly Christian home, I grew up in, grew up um, before 
going to New York. Uh, I grew up in, in Maine. Um, and in, both of those places are very um, secular, liberal cultures. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so I have always, you know, until my adult life, always been the only Christian in my group, among my peers, at school, at university. And so I've just, you know, I've never fit in within the world. And I guess it's also just I haven't quite in, fit in that neatly in the church culture either. Sure. Which, in my opinion, lends quite a bit of value to you. And that's where I think so many people enjoy listening to your perspective because it is unique in a world of somewhat homogenous voices. Um, so you come from Maine and then New York, and then you end up in the South. And I, I grew up in Wheaton, Illinois, which I know you're familiar with at Wheaton, having spoken at Wheaton College. And um, so I, I kind of grew up in a pocket of the Bible Belt up in the North. And then I moved down here. But you're from Maine and New York. Uh, coming into this evangelical Bible Belt world, was it even more difficult down here than it than it was in New York? It it was. It is. Um, yeah. it, it was quite a culture shock to come down here. Um, and I still, you know, I still think this is uh, this is part of what um, gets me in trouble, so to speak, with <laughs> my fellow Southern Baptists. And, yeah. You know, because I still. You know, even I've been down here 21 years. I taught at Liberty for 21 years, and I'm yeah. I've still I have I have been formed by living in a secular liberal you know environment, and in that environment, people you know they aren't they aren't believers, and they aren't shy about they're just upfront about what they believe, what they don't believe, what they reject. And I've found that it's actually very harder. It's much harder to kind to be a witness for the gospel in a culture and an environment where people have been inoculated against it. Um, I think oftentimes people, because living in, in the Bible belt, people don't even know what true belief is and they don't know that they don't have it. Um, Which is very, very different from where I grew up. So, yeah. Yeah. So in past I've experienced similar things in pastoring in the Bible Mm. belt, more often than not, you feel as if you almost have to convince someone that they might not actually have genuine faith because right. it is so ingrained in the culture. And right. so I think, yeah, you having taught where you've taught, um, and I'm a byproduct of that institution. Mm-hmm. So I, I know you love it. I love it, but it is difficult, you know, coming from uh, a different world. I think in my, just following you and researching you, it, it's, I think where you show uh, your ability to stand up to criticism or at least sometimes, right, just standing up to criticism is just not backing down from it and changing your viewpoint is, is your advocacy for the life of the unborn? And, um, you know, I admire that so greatly about you, but you do it very differently than almost anybody I've ever seen, which uh, in a article you wrote for Vox in 2019, uh, you wrote these words, which I think are beautiful. Uh, You said, we will look at these ultrasound images of 11 week old fetuses somersaulting in the waters of the womb and lack words to explain to our grandchildren why we ever defended their willful destruction in the name of personal choice and why we harmed so many women to do so. You use words, I mean, you're a literature professor, so it should be no surprise, but in a world of protesting, uh, and we're living in one right now, we're so often protesting is who can yell louder, mm-hmm. who can make the most dramatic statements. Your style is very eloquent and, uh, and you seem to really be doing your best to get your point across in a way that no one else is. How much of that do you attribute to your background in teaching and reading um, 
and, and spe- specifically literature where uh, the classics are, are hard for us to read nowadays because of how eloquently they're written. But, but you bring that voice into activism. Uh, how much of that do you attribute to your background? Well, I mean, it's all because of reading, I think, um, because of reading widely and reading well and reading um, voices from the past and mm-hmm. and being informed by those perspectives. And it's, you know, it's not just about what we believe, but it's, you know, words are powerful. Language is powerful. Um, and we actually, you know, we can be shaped by, you know, we can see the world through the lens of the uh, of the words that we use. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I mean, how, how else did people justify horrific things like slavery and the Holocaust other than by using words and in a wicked and deceptive way to justify what they were doing? Um, And with abortion, you know, it's a similar thing. We can, we use words to dehumanize the unborn. Um, We use words to, to um, demonize the women who have also been dehumanized in the way that we have, have erected abortion into our culture. Um, You know, we've, we've just built an apparatus um, through words that has gotten us into this mess and we need to use words to speak truth to get out of it as well. Yeah. And you've spent, as you said, 20 years, just even at one institution and teaching in New York before that. And now in North Carolina, when you're speaking to the next generation of Christians, how would you like to see them better use their words in times such as the one we're living in, where you do have the, the abortion debate, but you also now have a a revitalization of racial tension. um, And then even what we're doing with COVID and we see such a struggle really on, on the, the part of the church to learn how to, I say, I feel like I'm talking to my children, but use your words. Um, Mm -hmm. How do you think Christians can improve in becoming more able to convince people with their words as opposed to their volume? Hmm. Well, I think, I think even before we use words, we need to listen carefully and Mm -hmm. we need to understand that, um, that words have uh, layers of meaning and they have connotations and implications. Um, So for example, um, you know, just to take the phrase Black Lives Matter, um, which is, you know, become sort of a, 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 it's controversial, it's a rallying point, it's all kinds of things. And to understand that if someone uses those words, we have to understand what they're really saying. Um, And there are lots of words like that, lots of phrases like that, where um, they become sort of signals or signs. And we assume that someone who uses them means one thing when in fact, maybe, um, you know, well, not maybe, there is a whole uh, context uh, and a person behind those words that we have to understand before we just uh, put them in one of those boxes that we like to put them in. So we have to listen. We have to pay attention to the resonance and implications of words. I have to do the same thing on social media, especially. I have to understand that because I have been trained to speak the language of secularists and liberals and to kind of translate Christianity for that audience that I have to maybe realize that someone in the Southern Baptist Convention and the Bible Belt is going to take those words and that idea differently. Um, So it's a challenge for me as well. Yeah. And that's gotten you into some hot water. Uh, I know, you know, having communicating with non-Christian parties and then Christians quoting back to you what you said Mm -hmm. and say, whoa, what, 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 and, and I've seen you 
deal with that very well, in my opinion. And um, it, it kind of leads me to something I, I wanted to discuss with you because I deal with a lot with non-Christians and people from different cultures and it, you find yourself constantly in hot water in some way. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you ever feel like you just make everybody mad? You know, so you've spent your career making people who believe in a woman's right to choose abortion. You've been making them mad. Um, you know, you've, you've been very vocal in that you believe homosexuality is a sin and you affirm what most conservative evangelicals would call the biblical view of marriage and sexuality, but you also continue to dialogue with homosexuals. And so you also often find yourself in hot water with Christians. And, and so it's been, it's been entertaining yet confusing to to even watch you from afar. Um, Do you just feel like you, you can't win? Um, I feel like I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I do feel like, uh, I, I am making everyone mad. I can't yeah. win. And I, I, if it weren't for the teacher in me, if it weren't for the Christian in me, um, it would be easy for me to say, I don't care what you think. Um, yeah. that's my natural tendency, but I do care and I do yes. want to enlarge understanding and, and I'm fine with disagreement where we're, a lot of us are going to disagree on a lot of different things, but I do want to, um, to make sure that people who think they disagree with me actually know what I believe and know whether we actually do disagree or if it's a difference in, in method or terminology. Um, and they, you know, we may disagree that about having a picture taken with, with a a homosexual, like some people just think that that's just a terrible thing to do. And I think, Hey, I, I love this person. I don't mind having my picture taken with him and (laughs) sharing it. So people may disagree about that. Um, but let's at least know that that's what we disagree with degree on, not on what the Bible teaches about, you know, sexual ethics. Right. And so, you know, I, I'm sure that you feel as if you've made missteps in the past and how you've dealt with that, but I know that you've been vigilant to, you know, I I follow you on social media. So I see your responses to various people. I, um, right before we got on, I saw something that you posted or reposted from a friend of yours. And so I see that you're, you're constantly engaging with, with all uh, quote unquote sides. Um, but you, I don't know that you would ever consider yourself an apologist. I don't know that that's necessarily how you view yourself, but I know that, you know, back at Liberty, you used to be involved in the center for cultural and apologetics. And, and I think the way that you think is valuable for those who, who are engaged in apologetics. Um, how, how then would you, what kind of advice would you give to a Christian apologist uh, from your perspective, which has spent so much time being okay with having your picture taken with people who disagree where, you know, it seems like most young people are told to pick. Most young people are told either you're, you're in the world or, or you're of it and in all this. So what kind of advice would you give to a young apologist or someone who wants to be an English professor, but be Christian too? And how do you manage your relationships with non-Christians and those who very much oppose your lifestyle? Um, and then also the fact that you have developed a pub, to be a public face of evangelical Christianity and people probably hold you to a standard. What kind of advice would you give to somebody who knowing what you've been through? Um, yeah, that's, that's a good question. I think, um, I think, you know, to know your convictions and, but also know not just what you believe, but why you believe it. Um, Mm. I'm seeing more and more young people who are, you know, either abandoning the faith or abandoning, you know, biblical principles because they're for the first time encountering different arguments that they were never exposed to when they were, um, coming up within the, the church world. And, um, 
and so if you you know if so so one example i and i think it was tim keller who said this something like this and i could be wrong but i think it was was um he said that if you opposed um homosexuality and then changed your view because you met or you know came to love a homosexual um then you were opposed to it for the wrong reasons to begin with um and whoever said that and however it sounds I might like have Tim it. Yeah, yeah yeah i mean so we have to i mean I, I am seeing people abandon what i consider to be biblical belief because i think in large part they were holding to those beliefs for the wrong reasons because they were told this is the right thing without understanding it so we it's really important first and foremost for us to know what we believe and why we believe it before we try to convince other people um you know, I, it, when it comes to the abortion issue, one thing that I have always said is I've said that my allegiance is to capital T truth. Mm -hmm. And I believe that the pro-life position is the position that captures the truth of the world and the universe and the mm -hmm. way God created us. And I have always said, if you can convince me to be pro-choice, I'll be pro-choice. Sure. Um, because if that's the truthful yeah. position that you know, I, and it's it, statements it, like that that get you in trouble sometimes, right? Because you say <laughs> things like, you know, uh, I, I think I've heard, um, you know, he's he's passed on now for quite a while, but I, I think I've heard David Foster Wallace say the exact same thing, this idea of hmm. what is capital T true. And, uh, and so would you say that, you know, I think about most of my Christian heroes, the people throughout time in the faith, it seems like all of them had quite a bit of... Um, activism in them. And then also they had a lot of Christians who thought they were misguided and in the wrong camps. Um, do you feel as if part of being true to your convictions as a Christian thinker and Christian leader is, is that it's inevitable that there's going to be Christians who say, what on earth are you doing? You know, uh, why would you, you know, cause this, we saw the same thing in the life of Christ. Why are you spending so much time with these tax collectors and sinners? Do you think, I, I mean, you have to refrain from telling young Christians, Hey, just go, you know, go hang out with whoever and, and wherever. But uh, do you feel as if that's part of the mark of obedience in the life of the Christian is that you do find yourselves in positions that are hard to explain? I, I do. I mean, I'm Protestant for a reason. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I'm Protestant because I do believe that the role of, you know, the individual conscience, um, the individual's um, revelation from the Holy Spirit through scripture is going to differ from person to person. I, I'm Baptist because I believe um, in the priesthood of all believers and in soul competency. Mm -hmm. And so we don't have a Pope. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that means that we are not only um, responsible before God to to understand and apply his word and his will as we can, but also we are free to a certain degree mm -hmm. yeah. um in our application and understanding and that that that's a little bit scary of course but it's also it's to me it's what makes it so exciting to be a christian like i mm. know that i'm imperfect i know that i'm fallible but i know god's word is eternal and true and there's just sort of that gap there and the whole challenge of the christian life and the life on this earth before we're in the new heaven and the new earth is to kind of close that gap to figure figure it out to be as close as we can mm -hmm. as humanly possible to god's will and god's truth in whatever environment he places us and we you know the the 
the history of the church is is long and varied and and the christians and believers have existed in for 2000 years in various places and conditions not just this american 21st one yeah. and whatever we believe to be true has to be true for all of them as well and that's a challenge it's, it's exciting yeah. um, it, it's yeah. hard but you know but that's what it's about Right. And it, and it is exciting. It's, it can be terrifying too, as leaders, um, because you feel like, you know, for me, even having a much, much less of a following than you, I, I have to think through, okay, what post on Instagram am I going to like, you know, uh, if I like this, is there going to be blowback on me? And I'm sure you deal with that to the nth degree. Um, but you know, you, you mentioned the idea we're in the 21st century, things have changed more in the last 10 years for, public Christians and, and any Christian in the United States. And it centers, in my opinion, at least here in the Bible Belt, around the word evangelical, um, or at least the concept. And, uh, you know, it's essentially a word that's been co-opted to mean something political. When I started at Liberty, it wasn't political. And now all of a sudden it is. You taught it Liberty, which many would consider to be the academic base of the right wing. We have presidents announcing their campaigns there now. And um, I remember when I was there, it I remember that was when the shift really happened. Uh, when we went from having um, pastors and missionaries and Christian leaders in convocation to two out of three times a week, we'd have politicians. And, and I remember trying to understand that because we all were told politics were important. And I think you and I would both agree, but it was just a, it was a drastic shift. And um, now you teach at Southeastern, which is well known in, in the Southeast and all over the country for producing pastors and ministry leaders. You write for the gospel coalition, which is at least publicly one of the seats of evangelical intellectualism. Um, so when the words, you know, Christian evangelical gets thrown around now, um, kind of what's your assessment of that? What does that mean now in the year 2020? Whereas 10 years ago, it, it really, it was strictly a religious word. And now if you and I get called evangelicals, we have to sort of sift through exactly now I'm this type of evangelical or, you know, is that a, is that a problem for you now, that word, or is it something that you just say, we, we have to define it for ourselves? Yeah, that, I mean, this goes back to our discussion a few minutes ago about words and all the layered yeah. meanings and what people mean. And, um, you know, I contributed to a great little book called Still Evangelical, question mm. mark, um, yeah. where a, a collection of, of essays uh, about whether or not um, the people who contributed consider themselves still evangelical. And, and most of the contributors, you know, are resisting that word for um, all the political reasons you just talked about. But, but my actually my area of expertise in English is actually the very period in which yeah. evangelicalism develops. So this is a word that is, is much longer, uh, has a longer history and a deeper history than, than, you know, the, the media understand when they use it to describe, you know, a voting block uh, yeah. from 2016. So it's a word I'm not ready to give up on because mm -hmm. um, evangelicalism, you know, began in the, in the early 18th century and it had played a leading role in the abolition of slavery yes. um, and in, in a, a, the founding and development of America. Uh, and so I realize it is a tainted word, um, but it, it has two, it, even even not only its history but even its its present i mean yeah. america isn't the where the only place where evangelicals um live and and minister and yeah. so it's we just have to realize that there's much more going on than our 2016 and 2020 elections in the world yeah well yeah i i fully agree and i think the concept too of remembering 
Americans didn't even invent evangelicalism, right? We think back to your specialty, um, but you know, many of my own heroes, John Stott, Karl Barth. I mean, these were men and, and, and of course women as well that um, their evangelicalism had nothing to do with their nationality. And I think that's maybe where we are beginning to stumble. Um, in a Washington Examiner interview or article about you, they had a picture of you, or at least that they described teaching at Liberty and you were teaching on the English novel and you had a great uh, sentiment. You said, this is one of the great gifts of reading literature. It helps us to see so far beyond our current moment because so many people are disillusioned by evangelicalism, don't even know what it is historically, and they only associate it with the past two years. And I think that that was written maybe in 2016. Um, and so, uh, you know, you you give this amazing window into how the world of the past helps us understand the present. Um, do you feel like right now, I know listening to you and, and listening to people like Tim Keller and, and all these others, intellectuals are being pushed to the side, it seems. If if your explanation for something goes much more beyond five or six words or it's good or it's bad, thumbs up, thumbs down, sometimes people can disregard your opinion as intellectual or too intellectual. Do you feel as if we have a growing disposition towards anti-intellectualism in the American church right now? I absolutely do. I mean, it's it's not even necessarily a new um, trend, but maybe a new sort of bump in in uh, the trajectory. Um, so, for example, Mark Noel wrote a book, um, "The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind," um, ten or well, maybe twenty years ago now, and um, he gives the history of how this anti-intellectualism is actually part of evangelicalism from its beginnings. But I think we're seeing a, a renewed emphasis on anti-intellectualism that comes from, you know, the existence of Google and, and digital yeah. media that may, lets people think that they can have access to a lot of information quickly and then become experts. Um, another great book that's more current than Knowles is The Death of Expertise by, um, by Tom uh, Nichols, I think his name is, and right, is that right? I think the, so. Anyway, yeah, I think so. The death of the yes, the death of expertise. That's a very scary book that everyone should read. But essentially, what's happening um, uh, is that I, you know, we are the in the Middle Ages used to be called the Dark Ages, which is a, you know politically incorrect term yes. right now. But <laughs> yeah. you know, understanding what that was, that it was a, a, the pre Enlightenment era. Uh, where literacy was not widespread and people were superstitious and and ignorant in sort of the you know i don't mean that in a pejorative sense they just sure. didn't have education um we are i think we're entering a new dark ages and it's not mm. because we lack information or literacy it's because we have too much information and we have mm. a false sense of literacy again we can wow. google something and think that we have information and make major decisions about our life and 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 our life individually and our life together um and yet it's not good information but we don't mm -hmm. even know how to how to weigh it so it, mm -hmm. so yes with yeah. that yeah i think we're entering what's like yeah. really like a new dark ages well and it's funny you said that because you know i know one of your goals one of my goals is to is to help christians especially but anybody who's willing to listen learn how to think and, and stop, pause, think, listen. Um, but when you say something like we're entering into a new uh, middle ages or dark ages, and you even mentioned the enlightenment to many Christians today, if, if you said, and you're not necessarily saying this, but it could be inferred is if you said we have to hope for a new enlightenment, we have so many negative uh, connotations 
with what came out of the enlightenment scientifically and things like that, at least Christians sometimes do. Um, and they would say, uh, well, no, we need to go back to the Bible. How, you know, if, if a Christian's listening to this and they say, I, maybe I, the word intellectual seems pretentious. I don't think any of us would call ourselves intellectuals, but to people, to Christians who want to think and really think through, um, how would you guide them in this world that we live in where there is so much information, but at the same time, we need to be slower to speak and quick to listen and, and whatnot. Um, what advice would you give to somebody who feels as if they, they say, I, I really am trying to think, but it's just so hard right now. Yeah, well, I would again go back to especially if, if you know, I would assume sort of your target audience is is Baptist and Protestant. I mean, you sure. can't separate the Enlightenment from the Protestant Reformation, right? right? So mm -hmm. if we are Protestant, then we really are for the Enlightenment. Yeah. Uh, but we just we just sort of recognize some of its limitations now, which is which is wonderful and good. Mm -hmm. Yet we still have to understand that if if we are and, and I really don't want to, you know, I, I hope I'm not offending any. Catholic friends who might be listening to this, but sure. again, um, I am Protestant for a reason, right. um, for many reasons. But if we are Protestant, and especially if we are Baptist, then we do need to understand that we that our individual responsibility to seek the truth, capital T truth, is for ourselves. Um, is a huge burden and responsibility, but it's also not one that we are tasked to carry and do alone there's a reason why we have the church there's a reason yeah. why we have the bible um because we don't just invent truth we don't mm -hmm. just create it ourselves we actually discover it and we don't do that on our own um we do that you know through the power of of god's word and mm -hmm. through um the traditions uh of you know of the pastors preaching the word in church sure. and teaching us and the Holy spirit. So, yeah. Um, well, so I do, before I let you go, I do want to talk some about literature and reading. I mean, we've talked somewhat about it roundabout, but that's your specialty. Um, and some of these other things maybe are more of a byproduct of, you know, that career trajectory. And so this is more of a lighthearted question for you. Um, when I graduated high school, I sort of went through a phase where I started because of actually one of the professors I took at Liberty, Stephen Bell, um, started rereading the books that I had been assigned in my high school English classes. Uh, why is it that when I was in high school, I hated those books? And then when I, when I reread Old Man in the Sea and, you know, Lord of the Flies and some of these other books, and why is it that when we, when we become adults, we start liking those books all of a sudden? Uh, is there something that changes in us or uh, is it a maturity level? What, what's been your experience with that? That's a great question. I think there are a number of reasons why we don't necessarily appreciate those books when we're younger. One is just that we are younger and we don't have the kinds of experiences that we can bring to the works that help us to really understand them. Um, so that's part of it. Another reason is these works are difficult to read. Mm -hmm. And so even if you read them for the first time, as an old, you know, as an adult, you still might not like them as much the first time that you read them as you do later. They're, they're um, infinitely rereadable. Uh, and so just a first time exposure, because it's challenging, um, is not going to be as rich and, and meaningful as later readings. Um, and, and I would say, you know, I, I have a little bit of experience in teaching high school English and of course have been in high school myself. And, mm -hmm. and I, you know, I think that the way our education system is set up today, it's really not conducive to engaging sure. these texts. Well, it's, you mm -hmm. know, about just 
what the story says rather than how the stories are told. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think when we can return to a book, we can really pay attention to the way that the language is part of the effect of the story. It's not just what happens, but it's how a great artist portrays it. Just in the same way that if we go to a museum and see, um, you know, a painting of a bowl of fruit, we don't look at that to see what a bowl of fruit looks like. We look at to see how this artist has rendered the bowl of fruit yeah. in the same way that literary artists render a story through the medium of language in a way that now that we perhaps care more about language and words can great can appreciate more greatly. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's amazing. It's amazing interpretation. It makes me think though, um, when I got into college and started kind of thinking, I, I'd like to read, I keep hearing everybody talk about the classics and, you know, what are these classic books everybody starts talking about? And of course there's, that's a wide range. The first ones that I picked up um, in the old library at Liberty University in DeMoss um, was uh, Ernest Hemingway. And so ta- thinking about reading these old books and enjoying them, and I very much enjoyed them, but now in a Me Too world um, and a world of cancel culture and everything, um, is Ernest Hemingway still relevant? Is he, is he as, as chauvinistic as I, as I think he might've been? Um, what's your opinion on that being a literature oh, he's professor? absolutely show, as chauvinistic sure. as we, we think he is. I mean, yeah. all of these great writers are greatly flawed. Yeah. Um, the reason why they're great is because they can reveal something about the human condition that, that far exceeds, you know, mm-hmm. their own uh, lives. And, but their works of course are limited as well. And that's why we mm-hmm. have to read widely um, and yeah. read, you know, writers read women writers and minority yeah. writers um and 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 just expand our horizons some but also you know so we can appreciate um the artistry of these great works while accepting their limitations as well yeah and that's difficult because i think we're told it seems now that you know ernest hemingway might be canceled in in 2020 right you know i mean some people might want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, but uh i suppose what you're saying is we should learn to pick and choose right he was obviously i remember reading some of his female characters and just going that's not how a person talks you know why is it that the why is it that you know jake barnes gets this really heroic script and then the female characters sound like cartoon characters you know um but should we continue to read these authors i mean we shouldn't throw them out right no absolutely not we should just read other authors as well yeah so, right. you know, to give yeah. us a bit more complete um, picture of, yeah. of human existence. Sure. I, I remember the first time I was ever moved to emotion reading a book um, was Farewell to Arms. I was on an Amtrak train going back home to Chicago and I finished the book as we were pulling into the station. And for anybody who's not read that book, it's it, it ends on a halt and it just crushes you. And I remember tearing up and kind of being like, well, how is this book making me so emotional? What is it that you think in your experience reading um, and teaching literature and whatnot, what's the difference between when a book affects us emotionally and a movie affects us emotionally? Well, they're different mediums. So they both obviously deal with story uh, and there are different ways of relaying a story. And so, um, you know, a a film does so visually and Mm -hmm. audibly. Um, It just does that in different ways. And of course, words can be part of it. Um, And uh, a book can do the the same thing. I think maybe because a book is um, 
in words we that we have to translate uh, mm. and imagine. Maybe it can get into us a little bit more deeply. But there there are some amazing films out there. I would, right. I, you know, I, I I my my first love is books, but mm -hmm. I, I love great film as well. Sure. Um, but again, great film uses its medium um, artistically, which is yeah. You know, so so films that don't do that can tell a story that's entertaining but it's not right. going to get into us the way that a a great work of art does right well and i i think i think you're right and and if somebody were listening to this and this is how i'll, I'll let you go because i know that you, you have a very busy schedule getting ready to start a fall semester and and so on and so on you're probably in the midst of writing right now but um if someone were listening to this and they said okay i get it because we have a, an adult generation maybe one of the first ones that really doesn't read that often and they said i believe you I should start reading literature. Uh, where would you direct a, a Christian, especially uh, what reading list would you give them to start with? Well, I, I don't, there are some great lists out there um, that you can, I think I tweeted one last week. Um, I don't have my own list, but mm -hmm. if you just want a couple of works to choose from, coincidentally, I have uh, begun a series with B&H books of, yeah. of classics that I have written introductions to that include the classic works um, for Christian readers and discussion questions designed ex to do exactly what you just talked about to help someone who wants to pick up a classic work, does doesn't know where to begin and I literally guide them uh, through that. So the first two that are out just this um, spring are Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility and Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. And I'm right now this summer I'm writing uh, introductions to Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte and to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. So um, the first two books are out. Um, and then the other books that I've written are also sort of guides to how to read and how to read right. well. So mm -hmm. um, yeah. I'm at your service. <laughs> <laughs> well, and if, if anybody's listening to this and that is you, you say, maybe I should dabble a little bit more and uh, more than Netflix and YouTube and whatnot. Um, those are great resources right there. And you can follow Dr. Pryor at, at uh, Karen Swallow Pryor on Instagram. Um, and it's right there on her link, the Amazon link to one of her books. And I'm sure that it'll, you know, we'll link in the show notes to as many of her books as we can possibly fit. Um, Dr. Pryor, I very much appreciate your time. I think that you're a wealth of information and a resource for young evangelicals trying to figure out this tumultuous world um, where they might feel like everywhere they step is a landmine. And looking ahead at the at the battlefield and seeing you uh, carefully navigating that is, is very encouraging to Christians, even those who might disagree with you, I hope. Um, and so uh, thank you so much for your time. I very much appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. I hope the show blesses the listeners. I'm sure it will. Thank you so much.